Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu slash join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmeyer, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Ukraine and Russia and what's going on in that part of the world. It's been in the news a lot lately, and we have two guests with us joining us. They're both ex- experts on that area of the world. Dina Speckler is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Indiana University Bloomington, and Podrick Kenny is Professor of History and International Studies at IU Bloomington. He's also Associate Dean for Social and Historical Sciences and Graduate Education, as well as Director of the Russian and East European Institute. If you have questions or comments about the um, about the, this topic today, you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send your, your questions there. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're still doing the show remotely, and we probably couldn't have gotten in the studio because of the snow today anyway, so you can't give us a call. I want to start with uh, Professor Speckler first and ask her about, you know, Russia and Ukrainian identity and, you know, why they might or might not want to, you know, defend their country in case of an invasion. What's the history between these two, these two areas? Well, the history between Russia and Ukraine is a fraught history. It it goes back centuries uh, to at least the 17th century when Russia first um, incorporated portions of Ukraine into its own territory. And uh, there's always been something of a division within Ukraine as to uh, just how legitimate uh, Russia's claims on Ukraine are. But be that as it may, the sense in Ukraine that... uh, that, that this is improper goes goes back um, way back, but the relationship I think has become particularly sensitive for Putin uh, ever since the uh, collapse of of the Soviet Union. Uh, from that moment on, uh, Russia's sense was that uh, it it lost uh, th- that when Ukraine became once again independent uh, in the aftermath of of that collapse, uh, that that was a terrible blow that uh, almost a third of the Ukrainian population is Russian-speaking. Many in Ukraine, at least at that time, were were sorry to see that 
uh, it emerged as an independent entity. Um, the Russian state, by some accounts, has its origins in Ukraine centuries ago. Uh, and uh, many Russians, in- including the president, um, really view Russians and Ukrainians as a single people uh, and uh, believe that Ukraine's ind- uh, independence, in-, in Putin's words, was artificial and therefore illegitimate. And Russia has needed its association with Ukraine. Ukraine has vast coal reserves that have supplied a great deal of Russian energy. Since the 1970s, Russia has been exporting gas, its chief export revenue source, through Ukrainian pipelines to Western Europe. Russia's most important naval assets are based in Ukraine. So what's been happening over the last year, just to jump to the the present, um, that Ukraine is, is poses a threat to, to Russia in, in many ways. The uh, emergence of a kind of fledgling democracy in Ukraine uh, is, is a great threat to Russia. Russia. Putin himself views the possibility of kind of democratic contagion. The more that uh, Ukraine becomes democratic, uh, the more democratic ideas and examples may, may spread to uh, Russia and kind of infect, infect or inflame the Russian population. Uh, that's quite scary uh, for the Kremlin. And um, Russia has been trying now ever since Ukraine gained independence in 1991 to ensure that the government in Kiev was pro-Russian. And the government in Kiev right now has been moving closer and closer to the United States and been trying very hard to move itself closer to, to NATO with, with some success. So the, uh, in, in the last year, uh, so Ukraine's status in connection with NATO has actually improved um, symbolically to be sure, but um, NATO efficiently recognizes uh, certain states as aspiring members uh, and it, it doesn't uh, mean an absolute uh, promise or guarantee, but it, it's suggestive that they are first in line on, on the road to uh, membership. And um, NATO granted that status earlier last year, early last year. Uh, and then um, a separate and, and more meaningful kind of less symbolic association, Ukraine received status as, as what NATO calls an enhanced partner. Um, which means that there are coordinated exercises and training missions so that uh, Ukraine can cooperate with NATO missions in a whole variety of of places. At the same time, arms shipments to Ukraine from NATO members, including Turkey and the United States most prominently, uh, have stepped up. Uh, And... um, the uh, in in this fall, some of those arms shipments gave Ukraine a new capability that the Russians view as offensive drones from Turkey. Um, I have in mind in particular. Uh, so um, I, I also think that what's been going on more recently, uh, there had been hopes in the Kremlin that with the new president uh, Biden that uh, or fears really about Biden that he might be less sympathetic to Russia's concerns with regard to uh, Ukraine, that that Trump had been very deferential to Putin and and his concerns. Uh, There had been some concern and and some hope that maybe uh, Biden might or might not um, 
take a, a harder line toward um, uh, you, uh, Russia in, in that regard. And Biden disappointed. He was not ready to support uh, Russia's concerns, Russia's claims with regard to Ukraine. Uh, that was troubling to, to Putin. Uh, and um, on the contrary, uh, when uh, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, was invited to the United States in September of 2021, uh, he used that opportunity to press for uh, NATO membership, additional arms. Uh, and while Biden didn't say yes uh, on the, um, the membership, uh, nonetheless, um, you know, Russia has been very concerned. So um, that's something of the background here. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a lot to unpack there and a lot of a lot of different questions or different avenues that we can go down. And I, I want to bring Dr. Kenny in now. And, um, you know, you have you can talk a lot about Ukrainian identity as well. And I, I guess I would like to follow up with that on on with the current situation, why might or might not, um, you know, what, as, as uh, Professor Speckler said, there, there's a lot, of, there are a lot of people in Ukraine who still identify as Russian, essentially. So why might Ukraine or why might they not want to defend their country in case of an invasion? Sure. Well, you know, the first thing I would point out is that the Ukrainians uh, stage three democratic revolutions over the last 30 years. The first one, which um, helped them gain independence as the Soviet Union fell apart in 91. And then there was the so-called Orange Revolution of 2004. Uh, We probably remember that as being the one where the the hero, Viktor Yushchenko, was a candidate for president who was nearly killed by um, a... uh, um, by poison given to him by uh, Russian-supported agents. And then most recently, the revolution of 2013-2014, uh, also known as the Maidan revolution, which ended with, uh, which culminated with uh, Putin invading Crimea and invading parts of eastern Ukraine. But the thing here is that these were three revolutions, revolutionary moments, each of which, in each of which uh, Ukrainians the ones who were participating, and it was large numbers of Ukrainians participating, were very clearly expressing their um, interest in being closer to the rest of Europe, uh, to be Western-oriented, and embracing uh, democracy and other things that they associated with the West and with Europe. Uh, And that set of sentiments has been growing in Ukraine over these uh, decades. It's there have certainly been setbacks where they have voted for more pro-Russian presidents. But if you were to be able to graph this on a curve, you would see that uh, Western orientation uh, increasing. The other thing I would uh, say that I think is really important is that ethnicity is not destiny. Um, It's true that there are a large number of citizens of Ukraine, including those who are in the areas occupied by the Russians right now, who are ethnically Russian. But it's not the case that to be ethnically Russian means you're pro-Russia. 
or even necessarily that to be ethnically Ukrainian means you're pro-Ukraine and all of that might imply. Um, among uh, Russian-speaking, Russian-identifying, I guess, Ukrainians, there's been a growing identification with the state of Ukraine. And that's one of the things that has to go into, the, into Putin's calculations that uh, an invasion, well, in fact, the invasion of 2014 or the invasions of 2014 and the potential invasion now is likely to further increase that identity uh, with Ukraine and with, um, and with the West and with Europe. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily that people will be ready to fight and die uh, for Ukraine, but there's a lot of evidence that suggests that people, in fact, are willing to fight and die for a Ukraine. We won't know. It's hard. To, you can't test that in, until an invasion happens. Um, but that sentiment really does uh, seem to be growing, no matter what the ethnic identity um, of the people of Ukraine. I think there's so much that both of you have already said that we want to follow up on, but I, I want to go to a couple questions that we've already gotten from folks. Um, Owen asks, and I think Professor Kenny, this is probably best for you. Owen says, my sense is that people in Ukraine increasingly in recent years identify as Ukrainian, whether they speak Ukrainian or Russian. How has Ukrainian identity changed over time? Ah, that's absolutely right. That uh, now to say you're Ukrainian, whereas if you go back to the Soviet period, to say you're Ukrainian would probably mean that you were uh, so deeply connected to Ukrainian language and culture that you were willing to articulate that identity as being more important than being Soviet. Um, but today to say you're Ukrainian can mean... Uh, much more than that, it can mean I want to be a citizen of the state and it's not so important what your um, ethnic identity is. Uh, Ukraine has, well, I, maybe to say it's multi-ethnic might be, um, might, might convey the wrong thing, but, but there are a number of smaller uh, ethnic groups uh, in Ukraine. Um, famously, Ukraine has been home to the largest uh, Jewish community in Europe outside of Israel. Um, and that's still true in the, in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and more and more of those people think of themselves, all of them, as being uh, Ukrainian and understanding that as a civic identity that might be next to whatever ethnic identity they have. Can I follow up, Sarah, before I know you have a couple more questions, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I wanted to follow up on that and ask um, Professor Kenny and, and Professor Speckler, how much of this might be generational? I, I actually I have to um, uh, give you a little background. I was in Ukraine in 20 or 2005 and have watched it carefully since then. I was actually in Crimea, which is now Russia, and I was in Kiev um, as well. One of the people that I know well from there had told me that she thought this was uh, somewhat generational and that younger Ukrainians were much more comfortable with identifying as Ukrainians and older Ukrainians were much more comfortable still identifying as Russian. You know, I, 
Um, I think uh, I'll defer to Professor Speckler on the on sort of the political implications of generational, um, I don't know, determinism, because certainly we can see in this country how, you know, very often there's this uh, sense evoked that, well, you know, the younger generation, that's going to quick, complete uh, change our politics um, in a more leftward direction, for example, and that doesn't always turn out to be true. But yes, overall, I mean, you have um, a, a large number of people who are adults who were born who've only known an independent Ukraine. Uh, now, some of them, this has also occurred in a number of the other post-communist countries. I've certainly seen this in uh, Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic, where I've spent uh, a fair amount of time over the years, as well as in uh, Ukraine, um, where you know, they, don't, they don't remember the Soviet or the communist period and yet that inclines them to say, wow, I've heard it was really great. It was stable. Um, they have this sort of retro uh, feel for it. But overall, yes, I think that it's true that more and more you have people who say, um, no, nothing connects me to Russia. Ukraine is the country I've grown up in and Ukraine is my country. That's also my sense that I haven't seen polling data uh, that might support this, but uh, in, in talking to Ukrainians, my sense is that, first of all, Ukraine is a little different from uh, Poland, for example, because uh, Ukraine wasn't an independent country in Soviet times. And Ukraine was subject to uh, intensive socialization and propaganda by the Soviet regime so that Ukrainians were encouraged very strongly in schools and beyond to consider themselves Soviet and not Ukrainian. Uh, but that changed in 1991. And there has been an intensive effort um, on, on the part both of, of government and uh, a kind of popular effort to encourage a sense of Ukrainian identity. And now, uh, as Padreka said, um, you know, we have a, a generation that was never socialized in, in Soviet times and never grew up with a Soviet identity, never grew up with a weak Ukrainian identity. And the whole project of an independent Ukraine is becoming, as my sense is, increasingly attractive to uh, a new generation. And um, that means that, that with time, that, that sense will grow. I, I would also say that uh, the younger generation, I think, has been deeply influenced. Everyone has, but especially the younger generation, by 2000, the events of 2014, uh, and, and by the sense that, that Russia really had predatory intentions on the new Ukraine. Uh, and, and this isn't just generational. This, this I, I, seems to me to have produced a, uh, exactly the opposite reaction of what the Russians might have wanted, namely a, a sense that uh, Russia is really an alien entity that has imperialist designs on Ukraine uh, and uh, needs to be opposed. Sarah? So in, in 2014, I guess just a follow-up to that. So I think, yeah, we, we viewed it as sort of this invasion of the Crimean Peninsula, but then there was this public referendum. So can you just kind of explain what that was? Because people actually voted to join Russia. Was that, was that, like a, was that a legitimate election? Or oh, in Ukraine? Oh, in Crimea. So, so let's yeah, yes. be careful what we're talking about. So, so yes. Yeah, so, and I think that's what you meant. That yes. the, like, well, first of all, that election was not what anyone would call free and fair. It was done 
under the auspices of uh, an occupation uh, with um, Soviet su- Russian supported uh, troops in, uh, in in the streets. Uh, and um, no one is quite sure whether the count of the ballots is accurate. That's one thing. But secondly, uh, Crimea really uh, has um, an unusually intense um, sort of concentration of not only just, and, and I think Federica is right in saying that Russian speaking doesn't necessarily mean Russian identity. I've heard Ukrainian nationalists, uh, you know, vehemently discussing their, their beliefs in Russian because that was the language they were taught. But that doesn't mean they identify with Russia. But in Ukraine, I mean, sorry, in Crimea, there were more people who really were Russian uh, and, and very recent uh, imports or the children of of Russians and who identified very strongly as Russian. So I wouldn't take the vote uh, in um, in Crimea A as necessarily representative of the attitudes of Crimeans, but secondly, of the attitudes of Ukraine or Ukrainians as a whole. Okay, okay. Um, I want to go to Professor Kenny now for a question we got from Rob. This is a little off topic from what we've been talking about, but Rob asks, what is behind the GOP's apparent 180 on the subject of Russia? Is it purely a new wave of isolationism? Oh, boy, that's a great question. And I think it's, uh, well, first of all, it's important to remember that this this seems to be something that is really splitting the Republicans because there are plenty of Republicans, maybe not so much among the leaders who have a traditional sense of Russia as being a threat, um, a traditional threat to this country, and who have a that, that kind of foreign policy understanding of the world. Um, and the, the embrace of uh, Putin and of other strongmen is something that was sort of, I guess, pioneered to a large extent by Donald Trump and people around him. Um, it's kind of boxed them into a into a corner because I mean, it, it's really become kind of deep in, in American DNA uh, over well, the last century to have a distrust of Russia. And it's one thing to, I don't know, cozy up to Hungary, which might not ring any alarm bells for the average American, but um, for better or for worse, we're usually not comfortable with anybody um, expressing a positive sentiments towards Russia. So I just, it seems like a, a blind alley to me. I, I think right. I w- would add, if, if I might, that sure. um, I, I think what we're seeing uh, in the uh, Republican Party is, first of all, a split. It's, it's by no means a unanimous uh, Republican move to um, uh, support Russia by any means, uh, but even among those who uh, have been very wary of American support for Ukraine, I think that the issue is is less pro-Russia than, um, Sarah used the word isolationist, than isolationist. And um, number one, this does reflect the message that, that Trump uh, preached, um, that, uh, you know, America doesn't have, uh, we should has no real obligations, no real interests in supporting allies uh, around the world and uh, in conflicts far from our borders. Why should we care? Um, There's that element. Secondly, I would say 
it's not just the, the right wing of the Republican Party, that isolationism in the sense that you know, let Russia do what it wants, um, you know, is um, reflected in the, in the population broadly. I mean, when President Trump took that stance, he understood that he was tapping a growing feeling among Americans that we'd spent too long uh, and committed too much blood and treasure to trying to reshape a world in our image. Uh, we didn't succeed. Uh, and um, it's probably not worth even trying. And that, that sense, public opinion polls do show that that sense is, is growing. So in part, the shift on the right of the Republican Party reflects um, a conscious calculation as to um, what will be, what will drive electoral success. We're talking about the events in Ukraine and Russia today with two scholars for, uh, who study that part of the world. Dina Speckler is assistant professor of political science at IU Bloomington and Padraig Kenny is professor of history and international studies at IU Bloomington, also associate dean for social and historical sciences in graduate education, as well as a director of the Russian and East European Institute. You can send us your questions about this issue, this broad issue at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You know, I look back to uh, what happened with uh, Crimea, and I, I think about that peninsula, which is sort of down there on its own, a lot of Russian speakers, a lot of uh, sentiment toward Russia. The um, Sevastopol is the, the, the Sevastopol is uh, a big naval base. And they wanted to take over that naval base. So, you know, that all happened. Now the troops are seem to be massing in northern uh, on the northern border of Ukraine I guess it seems like a different um, scenario at this point than taking over the peninsula as bad as that was. Can can you can either one of you sort of uh, give us odds on how likely it is that there actually will be an invasion? Patrick, you want to or <laughs> I'll start. Yeah, take it away. Uh, well, I'll start and, and I'm sure Patrick will have more to add. Um, so I've been asking myself that every waking hour of every day for the last two months. Um, and I, I know my bottom line is, I don't know. And I don't think anybody knows. I'm sure, not sure Putin has made a decision. Uh, I think there would be very high costs to Russia. <clears throat> and um, given, and it's not so clear to me in the end what the benefits would be were Russia to undertake, if we're talking about a large-scale invasion that uses a significant portion of those 120, 130,000 troops that are massed actually in, on four sides now around Ukraine. Um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, it would be, first of all, an expensive undertaking, um, secondly, uh, we don't know, uh, in the end, how many Ukrainians will resist, but there will definitely be resistance. Uh, there were going to be Russian lives lost that will be hard to um, disguise or conceal. Uh, that doesn't go over well with the Russian population, uh, as we saw with Afghanistan and the return of the coffins. Many people attribute the fall of the Soviet Union to the return of the coffins uh, and the marches of the mothers of Afghanistan, uh, of the soldiers who went to Afghanistan uh, at, um, in uh, the 1980s. 
So uh, there would be that cost. And of course, the sanctions that would be levied, um, the sanctions we've levied since 2014 have already had a significant impact on the uh, Ukrainian economy. And these sanctions would bite even harder. They'd bite even closer to Putin and his cronies. They would be directed at them, among other things. Uh, so um, uh, it, it, it's not so clear that, that Russia will undertake that, that Putin would want to risk. There will be a, um, you know, public opposition that will be hard to suppress. And it's not something Putin is looking for. So, um, so I don't know, but on the other hand, and I don't want to monopolize this discussion, um, there's a lot at stake for, for Russia. And um, it's not impossible that, that uh, the Russians would follow through on, on their threat. As, uh, well, they haven't threatened it verbally, but they've threatened it by their actions. We hear a lot about how information going to Russians is you know, usually not accurate. But I guess, can you just talk a little bit about that? Like, what are Russians hearing about what's happening? And even, you know, Americans, how reliable is the information we're getting about what the situation really is? Patrick, do you want to take that one or do you, you want me to field it? Uh, why don't you start on that? Okay. So, um, well, the Russians are getting a very different picture. So what the Russian media are uh, telling Russians is that uh, there is, is uh, Western, especially American aggression, that there uh, is discussion of arms flowing into Ukraine, uh, of uh, American aggressive intentions toward Russia. Uh, and uh, the picture that, that Russians are getting is that Russia is the victim and Russia's vital interests are being ignored and infringed upon by uh, United States and by NATO, uh, and that Russia is in danger uh, from the predatory intentions and inexorable expansionism of, of NATO. You know, and I, I guess I'd add to that, that you know, we, we do have to acknowledge that um, that's, in part, that's not an irrational perspective. Um, that doesn't mean that we have to um, accept the, the Russian perspective, but when they, uh, Putin himself, but the Russian people in general, if they look to the West and they see first in 1999, NATO expanding into several of the countries of Central Europe, and then in 2004, expanding into the Baltic Republics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which were part of the Soviet Union, I mean, that was certainly something that was never imagined from the Soviet side uh, in, uh, in its waning days, that NATO would actually um, include states that had been part of the Soviet Union. So that sense of, of, a, of, a, of an existential threat um, is, d- does have some meaning. And I guess that's always useful to understand that uh, that other countries could imagine that they are in that situation where they're gravely threatened. I guess one could add to that then that, that you know, logically um, a Russian politician could look and say, well, you know, if NATO being in, in, in the Baltic uh, states and having a close relationship with Ukraine, they're really not going to expand there anytime soon. This is not something to, to be really afraid of. But then you have Putin and the Russian media very consciously playing up that fear 
um, rather than trying to alleviate it. Um, so yes, they are. I mean, the media there is uh, by no means uh, free. Russians can get access to good media, but they are, um, if they're looking at state media, that, that's what they're hearing is that you should be afraid the West is trying to destroy our, um, uh, or threaten our existence. Two follow-ups to that. Um, Dr. Kenny, I'm going to ask you that tough question about, you know, how likely it is there will be an invasion. And, and then the second part of this question is, you know, if Ukraine had been a member of NATO in 2014, 2015, would that have uh, dissuaded the Russians from going into Crimea because NATO countries would have come to Ukraine's defense? Well, first on the on the uh, on that first question of of what will Putin do? I mean, I also feel well. I mean, can we have any idea? But I have to say, I was um, quite impressed by uh, an opinion piece in the New York Times a week ago by Yulia Latinina, um, where she essentially argues that Putin gambled, figuring that we would fold easily. Um, that uh, Biden and NATO leaders would want to get this off the table and would quickly say, oh, yeah, no, of course not. Ukraine, yeah, we didn't mean it. Ukraine will never be a, a member of NATO and maybe even withdraw some troops from the East and so on. And we didn't. And we've somewhat doubled down. And that has Putin rather worried. Um, and I think the evidence for her argument is uh, that if you compare this crisis to others that Putin has dealt with, the wars in Chechnya in the Caucasus, or uh, his uh, invasion of a part of the country of Georgia um, in 2008, or his continued support of a breakaway part of the country of Moldova, or his support for Kazakhstan in their recent um, to put down a recent uh, rebellion there. Each of those have been pretty low cost. And actually one could say the same about his invasion of Crimea uh, and the taking of parts of Eastern Ukraine. Each of those have been relatively low cost, have been done relatively quickly um, and have uh, not um, caused the deaths of tens of thousands of Russian soldiers and Russian citizens. Arguably now it looks like a, an invasion of Ukraine proper, troops pouring over the borders from Belarus and from Russia into larger parts of Ukraine, if that's what it would look like, would look rather different. That there might be significant NATO support or American support that the Ukrainians themselves, as we've been talking about, would be more willing to uh, defend their country and that this would be something long and drawn out, which is not what Putin has done. Now, just because he hasn't done it doesn't mean he would be, he would not be willing to do it now, but I've been trying to think of a scenario, and this is dangerous trying to get inside Putin's head, um, but I've been trying to imagine a scenario that allows Putin to say, see, I was successful, but at relatively low cost. Um, and, you know, that might be uh, some stepping up of his control over 
the areas in, um, in Eastern Ukraine, or perhaps um, a lightning expansion of that territory, maybe linking up those areas more, more thoroughly, that would allow him to claim victory at relatively lower cost. I'm not saying that would be a good thing, because the best thing would be for him to get out of the areas of Ukraine, including Crimea, that he currently or that Russia currently occupies. But perhaps that would be um, a likely scenario. Um, now, as for the what if had NATO expanded into Ukraine, you know, I feel like I have to punt on this one because it is absolutely impossible to imagine NATO expanding in that way um, at that time. And I guess the link to the earlier question is, you know, NATO's expansion, with the exception of its expansion into Poland in 1999, which was sort of a foregone conclusion, I think, the rest of it has also been very low cost. I mean, uh, expanding, you know, the most recent expansion was into North Macedonia, before that Albania and Croatia, and then, you know, going back further in the expansion into um, the, the Baltics. They're mostly tiny countries. Um, and for the most part, without any commitment for permanent uh, stationing of troops. So they've been sort of easy. You know, now we're stationing troops in Poland and I believe in Romania. Um, but it would be hard to imagine, first of all, Ukraine is bigger than all of those countries, almost bigger than all of the other expansions combined. It's pretty close um, uh, to that size of population. And it would be really difficult to imagine NATO expanding into Ukraine without stationing troops. So it would be completely different from the other expansions. And frankly, I couldn't imagine it happening then. And it's really difficult to imagine it happening now. I, I appreciate your answers, uh, both of your answers to those questions, those theoretical questions and uh, asking you what ifs is uh, really difficult. And I appreciate your answers. Um, I guess I want to get your reaction to the, the news that broke in a significant way yesterday about some evidence of this potential false flag event, uh, which Russia would pull off in Ukraine that would then create um, an atmosphere or a situation where Russia felt like it needed to go in. False flag uh, event. Do you how how likely do you think that was or how credible do you think that report is? Um, well, I, I think um, it, it's I, I don't know what uh, false the particular false flag operation was that we were attributing to Russia, but um, that it would use such an operation that is find a pretext for moving in. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it, that would help justify that move uh, and to the Russian population as well as to the world. And uh, other Russian moves, most notably into Georgia, have uh, accompanied just such a, uh, an incident that was probably intentionally provoked in order to be able to say that the Russians there need our protection. Uh, it's a very logical uh, sort of a scenario for, for Russia to find some pretext for saying the Russians in Eastern Ukraine are, are uh, being victimized and, and need our support. Our, our allies there are crying out for our help uh, and have been uh, unjustifiably attacked. So 
I consider that highly likely, whether this business about a, a video that, that they might show uh, or exactly the form that the, uh, the incident might take is really hard to say. It's almost uh, endless possibilities, but that, that one would be offered to the Russian people uh, and to uh, the international community, I think is, is pretty likely. You know, I, I'd agree with that. It's entirely within in Russia's style. Um, it's worth pointing out how unusual yesterday was because we see great powers like the United States deploying their intelligence all the time. What we rarely see, and I, I can't right now think of another example, is the United States revealing in this way its intelligence in order to forestall a move uh, by uh, a, a rival, um, because it, it was clear when they when they revealed this information yesterday that you know if you were paying close attention from the Russian side, you could probably figure out how we knew this, where we'd gotten it from, and so on. And so, and so it was from an intelligence perspective a somewhat risky move, uh, and again, one I can't think of a parallel to. I agree. Uh, but then, so what's what's new is on the American side and perhaps the British side as well, but but not uh, really on the Russian side. The the idea of that kind of scenario is highly uh, predictable and likely. So I want to get your reaction to to another uh, issue, and that is, you know, the Olympics are starting today, and Putin is going to be front and center with the president of China at the Winter Olympic Games um, with what's going on. And, you know, is there any association with what's going on in Ukraine for him being so, um, you know, so visible at this time? And uh, even you know, if there is or there isn't, I mean, what's, what's to be gained by him showing such um, a, a friendship or a kinship with the president of China? You know, I'm tempted to say not much. Um, and uh, I'm maybe exaggerating there, but one thing I'm struck by is that uh, Putin doesn't get in this situation to be appearing among a whole bunch of world leaders. Uh, instead, he's sort of um, isolated in this. And so it's kind of the, his um, uh, the luster is sort of off the, the opportunity to appear in uh, in Beijing. Now, again, I'm somewhat exaggerating because, of course, the, the Chinese are very good at, at um, making events very grand and, and uh, giving Putin the opportunity to appear on a world stage. But, I mean, contrast, uh, contrast this with what it would have looked like if all of the Western countries had also sent major leaders for the opening of the games. Instead, he's gotten up on this world stage to discover that um, it's not such a great stage after all. Now, that being said, of course, um, Russia is wise to use uh, their uh, relationship with uh, China to their advantage. There's no question. I'm just suggesting that it's, it's, a, it's a weaker move than, than it might have appeared otherwise. Would it have been different if U.S. diplomats were going? Yes, Absolutely. Well, I, I think I, I actually disagree on that one with, with Patrick. I, I think that um, what we're seeing here is not so much linked to the events of the moment, but it's of tremendous importance to Putin 
to solidify, to proclaim to the world, proclaim to the U.S., the importance and the closeness of his relationship with Xi Jinping and with with China. Uh, That that relationship has, in a sense, saved Russia. After the 2014 and after sanctions were imposed, what happened was that Russia's um, uh, trade and investment links with Europe uh, and lesser extent with the United States were simply shifted to, to China and China took over as by far and away Russia's major trade partner, key investor, and those links are critical. And um, China is interested in Russian support for its position on Taiwan. The Russians have held back hitherto with that. Um, Chinese want uh, Putin there. Putin is happy to be there because Putin is happy to show the world. One of the first things the Chinese did was um, what they hadn't done before is say very clearly, Uh, We understand and support and sympathize with Russian interests in in Europe. Uh, And uh, this isn't just symbolic. There has been closer and closer military cooperation between the two. So the appearance in Beijing is important to Xi Jinping. And for that reason, if no other, and there are others, um, Putin would want to show up and give his partner uh, the nod he needs, and especially now in this situation, because with sanctions from the West looming, the Chinese partnership is all the more important. And any sort of possibility of deterring Western moves by demonstrating the closeness of that alliance is also important to Putin. So I don't think it's an accident that Putin is there. I think he would have been there even had he not already been escalating events in, in Europe. Um, but they are connected. You just mentioned the sanctions, and I'm curious about how effective these really are as a tool, because, you know, it was even something that we heard about during the Trump administration, this possibility of sanctions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess how many sanctions can we, we apply and do they really matter? Uh, Patrick, do you want to start on that? Or do you? Um, you know, I guess I would say that um, I think in this case, they're less important than the the steps that the United States and NATO have taken to show they actually mean business about supporting Ukraine. I mean, I think the, the positive of supporting Ukraine is a bit more important. On the other hand, these sanctions um, do seem to be more significant than ones in the past. But I think I, I'm, I'm more impressed by the positive moves that have been taken. Well, what I would say is that the sanctions have been effective, but would have been a lot more effective had China not stepped in. In other words, China filled the gap that uh, was created with the withdrawal of uh, American investment, American technology, Western investment, Western technology. Uh, And so China has played a tremendous role in buffering the impact of of those uh, sanctions. Now, there are further sanctions that could be imposed, The question is, and on this issue, there is not one really uh, NATO policy. There are 30 NATO policies. There are 30 NATO countries, some of them themselves internally divided, like the Germans, uh, on uh, just how far a sanctions policy ought to go and what the West ought to sacrifice in order to impose further sanctions. Um, And the United States, particularly under Biden, is very mindful of the interests of our allies. So that can limit the sanctions that in the end, either we alone or we with our allies or we with some of our allies 
would be willing to uh, impose. Uh, military operations are probably going to need to be approved by NATO as a whole, but economic penalties in the end will not have to run through Brussels. Uh, and uh, while they, it is better from the Western point of view, if they can be coordinated through Brussels, they won't necessarily be. And how effective they can be will depend in part on some of that coordination. I'm curious, Professor Kenny, if you, if you can just back up a bit and just explain for for other countries and even folks in the U.S. who aren't really paying that close of attention to what is happening, why would you tell them this conflict is important and what would you tell them is at stake? You know, I guess I would want to make the argument that when you have a country, um, especially one the size of Ukraine, but, uh, but a smaller one as well, that has so clearly expressed, uh, clearly and increasingly expressed its desire to have closer relations uh, with the West and to be uh, trending towards democracy. It's a, it's a democratic country, although not as, not as free a democracy as, as some uh, farther West, um, that if, if we don't stand for that as Americans, then, then what do we stand for? And that's one of the um, signal uh, facts about uh, being an American in, in the world in the 20th and 21st centuries, that we show support for countries that appear to share um, many of our values. Um, and it's not only about uh, geopolitics, and that's not the only reason we support uh, countries. Um, and that's something to be proud of. Now, supporting Ukraine is, uh, is a much, much bigger uh, stake than supporting uh, some much smaller country. And if, if we think about, you know, the war to, uh, to protect Kosovo in 1999-2000, uh, when Serbia was beginning a genocide against the people of Kosovo, there, there the stakes were, were vastly lower. And in Ukraine, they're much, much higher. Um, but uh, Ukraine should matter because they have continually um, expressed their desire uh, to be um, closer to Europe. Um, so I guess I, um, I mean, that, that raised the question of, are there countries that if, um, if uh, Putin was threatening that we should not support? And I'd hesitate to say there, but maybe I'd draw a contrast with what's happening in Kazakhstan, not to say that you know, we shouldn't support the Kazakhstan, but there it would, it would be much more likely to be understood as a geopolitical move. Uh, and in the Ukrainian case, we could say that there's much more of a um, of a value connection to uh, to the United States, professors. Spector, I, I, we have about we have about two minutes to go. So if you could wrap us up, I'd appreciate it. All right. Well, I would add to, and I fully agree with with Professor Kenny that um, uh, there's a lot at stake here besides geopolitics. But I also want to come back to fundamental principles of international order and international law. I think what's at stake is the principle of respect for state sovereignty, for the inviolability of international borders, for abstention from the use of force as a means of settling international disputes, 
And um, these are all at issue. They're all on the line right now. And I think America wants to live in a world and, and our European allies want to live in a world in which these principles are not violated without consequence. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, there are other reasons for America to be supporting Ukraine. All right. Thank you. We are out of time. And uh, you've both been fantastic guests today. Uh, it's a complicated uh historical issue there's a lot to it and i think that you helped us understand it very well so thank you to dina speckler associate professor of political science at iu bloomington and Padraig kenny professor of history and international studies at iu bloomington for my co-host sarah whitmeyer for our producers holden holden abshear and benta boutier and for engineer john bailey i'm bob zaltzberg thanks for listening Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. You're listening to WFIU Bloomington. With translators W270BH at 1019 in Bloomington. W264AL at 100.7 in Columbus. W269BU at 1017 in French Lick, West Baden. 